Today you might hear something like this. If you truly love someone, you would accept them as they are. If you truly love someone, you would always see the best in them. If you truly love someone, you would do anything for them. Have you heard something like that before? Popular ways to end, uh, end that statement. And let's put aside the, the validity of those statements for a second and discuss what those statements reveal. Because it reveals something about love, something that's very true about love. That from love flows something else. That love is more than just a feeling. But from love flows action. If you really love someone, there will be a resulting action from that love. That's the way the Bible talks about love. And even people who don't believe in God or think the Bible is worthless would say that from love comes action. If a husband loves his wife, he will wash the dishes, cut the grass. He will hug her and kiss her. If a parent loves their child, they will take care of them, love them, give them food to eat. From love comes action. But here's the thing. If you don't know God, and you don't know the Bible, what the Bible says about love, people can try to show love in ways that are actually unloving. The truth is that we need God and we need the Bible because God shows us what love really is. For example, if you truly love someone, you will accept them as they are. Is that always loving? Is it always loving to just accept someone as they are? What if who they are is living in sin? What if they continually are falling into the same sin again and again? Is it loving to just accept them? Or would it be loving to go to them, to confront them, and to lead them back to God and His forgiveness? That's really the, the issue that the Corinthians were wrestling with. They were wrestling with how to show love, godly love, to their, their brother in Christ. Paul wrote them a letter that we have in the Bible called 1 Corinthians, and it is a great exposition of God's love for the people, and you can tell that Paul really loves the Corinthians when he's writing this too. 1 Corinthians has perhaps the most popular and world-known chapter of love. You know what chapter that is? Chapter 13. How many of you have been to a wedding or had at your own wedding First uh, Corinthians 13. Have you heard, heard that at a wedding before? Yeah, I see a lot of hands. It, and rightly so. It's all about love. It talks about a love is patient. Love is kind. It keeps no record of wrongs. It always perseveres. You know, the list goes on and on. And it's a beautiful exposition of what God's love is for us and how we can show love to others. How many of you have heard a, a wedding sermon on First Corinthians chapter 5? If you're raising your hand, you're a liar. <laughs> because there's never been a wedding sermon on 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Because the first part of that, that chapter is titled this, On Dealing with the Case of Incest. 
it's all about Paul confronting the Corinthians, scolding the Corinthians, because what's happening in, the, in their Corinthian community is there's this man who's having sexual relations with his father's wife, his, his stepmom. And he's letting this, the Corinthians are letting this go on without saying anything to this man. So he's scolding them. And he says really harsh, direct things to them. He says, he, this is a little section from 1 Corinthians 5. He says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among Gentiles. He's saying, not even unbelievers fall into this. A man sleeping with his father's wife, and you are arrogant? And later, he says this, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Those words are just dripping with love. You might say, really? <laughs> really? Hand that one over to Satan? That's loving? Paul, you're encouraging us Corinthians to, to take this man and hand him over to Satan. How could that possibly be loving? That's the situation that Paul is talking about in our section, section from 2 Corinthians today. He's making reference to this situation that took place in the past here. And he says this, I wrote as I did, talking about the letter to the 1 Corinthians, so that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know my depth of love for you. So Paul is saying this. I wrote you this, this 1 Corinthians 5 because I love you. I wrote you this 1 Corinthians 5 so that when you got this letter, you would take care of this. That you would see this situation as a sin. And that you would take action for the sake of that brother in Christ. That you wouldn't just wait for Pastor Paul to show up to take care of this, but that you as a Corinthian community, would take responsibility for each other's spiritual well-being. And so he's encouraging them to love this man by confronting him. That's a difficult concept. And it's just as difficult back then as it is today. Because we don't equate love to confrontation. We equate love to these nice, warm, fuzzy feelings, to happiness. We equate love to, to statements of praise. But we don't equate love to confrontation. In fact, when we think of confrontation, we often think that uh, of the prospect of confronting someone means that I'm being judgmental or unloving. And frankly, it's easier to take a step back it's easier to stay away from that person. It's easier to jump into the camp of the world. Because here's, here's what the world's saying. He's saying, 
if you really love that person, you will accept them as they are. <laughs> That's a good out, isn't it? I don't have to confront that person. I, I just have to accept them as they are, and that's how I show love to them. The world will say this, and people believe this, that acceptance is almost one of the highest forms of love and that the whole world will be transformed if everyone just accepts each other. But is that really a loving thing? Would it really have been loving for the Corinthian people to let this man go on living however he wanted to? Not telling him that what he was doing was wrong and a sin against God. Would it have been, would it have been loving to let this man go to hell without saying a word to him? What if God treated you like that? What if God took a step back and said, I'm just going to let you live however you want to. I'm going to stand back here in my corner And I'm not going to let you feel consequences for sin. I'm not going to let you feel pain or shame or guilt. I'm never going to send anyone into your life to tell you that what you are doing is wrong. And so you kept on doing it again and again and again and again. And life was good. Life was happy. And you had 80 years of happiness here on earth until you died and you met your Maker. And he sentenced you to an eternity in hell and punishment for every single one of those sins that you didn't even know was wrong. Would that be loving? No. A loving God would not do that to you. Your God loves you so much that he confronts you when you're caught in sin. He confronts you with his law with the Ten Commandments, with the command to love. In the Gospels, he he makes sure that you're without excuse, that you know that you are sinful. He says, you may try to get off on the whole murder thing, but I tell you that even if you hate your brother, you hate your sister, you're a murderer. You may say, I've I've never committed the sixth or broken the sixth commandment. He says, even if you look at someone lustfully, you've already committed adultery with them in your heart. He confronts you with that because he loves you. He's given you that law because he loves you. And he sends people into your life to confront you because he loves you. That, that pastor that shows up on your doorstep and says, hey, haven't seen you in church for a while. What's been, what's been going on? What's going on in your life? That, that pastor's not there because he hates you. He's not there to be judgmental. He's there because he loves you and he wants you to come back. That, that friend that confronts you and says, why are you pushing God and your family away from you? Why are you doing that? That, that family member that comes to you and, and says, you're really not making good decisions right now. Your decisions that you're making are not God-pleasing. Those people are a gift from God to you. He sends those people to you because he loves you. 
And he doesn't want you to be lost in sin forever, but he wants you, you to come to grips that you are sinful. And those people that come to you, they love you too. And they want to bring you to something. They don't want you to just feel sorry. They want to bring you to something. We talk about how from love flows something, right? From love flows action. Well, when God confronts you with his law, when he sends people to confront you in your sin, he wants to show you his greatest action. He wants you to know that you deeply need something. And he has that something that you need. That out of God's love, he gave you the greatest action. He gave you his son. Out of God's love came action on the cross. So that when you're confronted with God's law, when you feel sorry for your sin, when someone comes to you and confronts you, they can lead you and you can lead people to the cross. Because Jesus has forgiven you by that greatest action of love. If you truly love someone, you will confront them and lead them to the cross, to Jesus, to know that they are forgiven. It's difficult, but but don't be silent. It's easy to not speak up, but you're not being judgmental. You're being loving. And what what you do in that moment of confronting, leading to forgiveness, can make an eternal difference. That's what Paul was doing. That's why he said, I wrote you this not to grieve you, But I wrote you this to show the depth of my love for you. As humans, we kind of of struggle with extremes on, on issues, not just biblical issues, not even just political issues. On any issue in life, we suffer from extremism, I guess you could call it. We like to be way over here on something, well, the, another group of people are way over here on something. But here's what we struggle with as all humans and as part of our sinful nature. We struggle with being in the, in the middle somewhere. We take things to extremes and that's just a part of who we are as humans. And, and the Corinthians were kind of dealing with the same issue here. Paul wrote them in 1 Corinthians and rebuked them and told them to rebuke this man. And that's how they would show love. Well, now, in 2 Corinthians, things have changed a little bit, and there's a different way to show this man love now. To avoid going from one extreme to the other. And that's something that we struggle with, too. Allow me to show you what I mean a little bit. One of the most popular news stories in the past year, maybe it's been two years probably now, um, was about this man. His name's Otto Warmbier. Otto was a a college student who was visiting North Korea with a a group of people. When he was in a hotel and one simple action, one simple decision changed everything for this guy. He took down a poster from the wall 
It, it was North Korean propaganda, and he was caught on camera doing it. So they, they arrested him, and they put him on trial, and they sentenced Otto to 15 years in prison for ripping down a poster. One year into his sentence, Otto slipped into a coma, and he was transported back to the United States where he passed away. Now, now there's a lot of outrage surrounding this news story, and rightly so, and for a lot of different reasons, right? Tension between America and North Korea, um, the fact that Otto passed away. But I, I think all of, the, all of the outrage stemmed from the very first action, that Otto was sentenced to 15 years for tearing a poster down. Does that seem fair to you? No. It doesn't seem fair. We all have this sense of justice and fairness in us that we want the punishment to fit the crime. If there's a severe crime, we want a severe punishment. Little crime, little punishment. No crime, no punishment. So when Otto rips a a poster down, he doesn't deserve 15 years, maybe a fine at most. But then we hear other stories in the news of a man who, who is intoxicated, gets into a car, and kills four people in a different car. If that man got one year in prison, we'd be outraged. The punishment didn't fit the crime. That punishment was not enough. And we wrestle with what is enough. And we want people to be punished enough because we have this sense of justice and fairness. So that situation that was going on with the Corinthians, of this man who was living in an ancestral relationship, who's living in sin, they wanted justice. They wanted fairness. They, they confronted this man, just like Paul had encouraged them to do. But now, Paul is encouraging them to do something else. And let's read the, the next part of our section from 2 Corinthians. Paul goes on to say, If anyone has caused grief, it has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. Here, here he's basically just saying, you all have felt the effects of this sin. You live in the community where this sin was committed. I, I haven't been there with you. That's basically what he's saying there. And he says, The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now, instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Another reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient to everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us. For we are not unaware of his schemes. So here's what Paul is basically saying. He's saying, stop worrying about if this man was punished enough. 
He says, I know you all have this sense of justice and fairness in you, and you want to make sure that this man's behavior changes forever, that he never does this again. So you want to make sure that his punishment is enough. And Paul's saying, it is. (laughs) He has been punished enough. The shame and the guilt that he has felt from this sin is enough punishment for him. You can imagine a, a community where maybe this sin started as a, a very private thing, and maybe just a few people knew about it. And then when Paul writes to the Corinthians and, and gives them this encouragement to rebuke this man, the sin starts becoming more and more public and reaching more and more people in the Corinthian community begins to know what, what's going on here, or, or at least hearing little bits of gossip. And there's ridicule going around for this, this man who was caught in this sin. His reputation had turned from maybe somebody who was upstanding in the community to now somebody who was a sexual deviant. And all of this was a result of his sin, right? All of this was a natural consequence for the sin that he had committed. But Paul says, that's enough. (laughs) Don't worry about the punishment. Don't worry about whether his behavior is going to change. Because Paul's concerned with more than just his behavior. He's concerned with this man's soul. He knows that it's just as dangerous for a man to be given a license to sin as it is for a man to be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow and guilt and shame. And so he gives the encouragement, this is how you love this man now. You reaffirm your love for him. You comfort him. You reassure him that he is forgiven in Christ. And you treat him like he's forgiven in Christ. And that's an encouragement to us to do the same. Because we like to go to extremes. And the devil likes to push us to extremes because he's winning when he pushes us to extremes. When they were over here and he was... And they were saying, oh, just let this guy do what he wants. We don't want to confront him with this sin. Let's just accept him as he is. The devil was cheering. He's going, yes, keep doing that. Don't say anything to him. And then Paul writes the Corinthians and says, rebuke this man. Correct him. And they start walking over to this side. And when the devil got him over here, yes, guilt, shame, remember your sin. You are lost. You can't be forgiven. He's cheering. Because the devil knows how powerful a weapon guilt and shame and pain and regret are. He knows that for you, too. And he uses those to keep you in in prison. He knows how good our memories are. He knows that you can remember the sin that you committed 20 years ago. So vividly, as if you committed it yesterday. He knows that if he pokes in the right area, he can get you to feel guilty over that sin that was committed 20 years ago. He knows that when you're not hearing God's word continually, you're not hearing that you are forgiven continually, that you easily forget that you're forgiven. That you easily question whether or not you are forgiven. The devil knows that he can use people in your life, who don't understand grace, to further imprison you. 
He knows all of those things. We are aware of the devil's schemes. God doesn't want you to remain in guilt and shame. He wants you to be right here. He wants you to know that you're forgiven. He wants you to know the action, the greatest action that he ever did, the greatest action of love on the cross. And that means you are forgiven. But he also gives you more comfort, more reassurance. He has given you, as the church, the responsibility, the privilege, and the power to forgive sins. Here's what that means. And here's how you can chase the devil away with this. That means if you forgive anyone their sins, they are forgiven. And if you don't forgive them, they're not forgiven. That's what Jesus says in John. We call it the the ministry of the keys. You have the, the power to unlock heaven for someone, to forgive them. And when you forgive someone their sins, it's as if Jesus himself was there forgiving their sin. When you stand here, or when you sit here, like you did this morning, and Chad stood here and he said, I forgive you all of your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that forgiveness is as valid as if it's from God himself. When your friend forgives you, it's as valid as if God himself forgave you. When your family member does it, it's as valid as if God himself did it. And that's for your intense comfort. It's so that when you're doubting your forgiveness, when you remember that sin you committed 20 years ago and your friend reminds you, you're forgiven. When you come to church and you hear that you're forgiven, you can know and be certain that you are. And in that way, you chase away the devil and his schemes. That you're not locked in the prison of despair and shame. So how can that look as a church? How can we be a place where forgiveness and grace reign supreme? How can we put this into practice when somebody who hasn't been here in a while, when someone who maybe even the, the church majority knows has been lost in this sin, how will we treat them when they first walk back in those doors? Will you be the person that is sitting in the pew and when they walk in, you're They haven't been here in a while. I can't believe they're back after all the things they've done. Will you be that person? Or will you be the person that gets up to greet, greet them? That, that moves from where you're sitting to go sit by them? That after the service, you go up and talk to them, invite them out for lunch? Will you be the person that gives them comfort, that reaffirms your love with them? Will you be the person that... that Maybe if you didn't have a relationship with them in the past, that reaches out to try to to have a relationship with that person. In that way, we can chase away the devil from all of our brothers and sisters in Christ's lives. It's a beautiful thing. If you love someone, you would blank. After hearing this, you might say this. If you truly love someone, you would correct them in their sinfulness and lead them back to the Savior. If you truly love someone, you would reaffirm your love 
in them. You would remind them that they're forgiven all the time. There's a lot of godly ways to fill in that blank. A lot of really good ways to fill in that blank. But here's a truth to take home with you. God really loves you. And God shows you what love really is in that He's forgiven you. Amen.